0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Banter. Again, we are remote today because we are all on quarantine because of the coronavirus pandemic. But we are thrilled to have an interview with Dr. Corey Shockey today, the director of AEI's Foreign Defense Policy Studies. Corey went to Stanford for undergrad and received her, her doctorate in government and politics from the University of Maryland. She's done just about everything in and out of government since then, various think tanks. She's been at West Point, she's been at the Department of State, Department of Defense. Before she coming to AEI, she was director of research at IISS in the UK, and we're thrilled to have her with us today to talk about American foreign policy priorities in the age of coronavirus.
1: You just heard from Max Frost. This is Max Tui. Up next, you'll hear from Matt Winesett. Again, AEI is really thriving right now, and I urge you all to check out our research, especially what Scott Gottlieb's publishing on the coronavirus and how we can reboot the economy when the time comes. This is an important time, and think tanks show up in a moment of crisis, and I'm pleased to say the AEI is showing up now. So just a quick shout-out, go to our website, check out our research, and I think you'll find it very helpful.
2: And hang around to the end, because Corey has a very extensive list of quarantine recommendations, as do we, a lot of novels and Netflix shows coming your way. But without further ado, here is our interview with Corey Shockey governor haley thanks for
1: coming in It's my
3: pleasure to be here thank you
1: mr george will welcome glad to be with you arthur brooks welcome back thank you guys i appreciate it ambassador wolfowitz pleasure to have you nice to be here thanks Ms. peggy noonan thank you
2: for coming guys
1: thank you very much for having
2: me, mr bolton it's an honor for you to be with us today glad to be with you
0: thanks for having me. jd vance welcome thank you for having me Corey, thank you so much for coming on banter we hope that you're doing well and staying healthy
3: thank you i am doing all of those things and I'm super glad that you guys are continuing to carry the banter banner in this time of international pandemic.
0: <laughs> and as are we so thank you for that. Um so you know to start this is a cataclysmic generation defining event. Um just some initial thoughts how does it change US foreign policy or how should it change US foreign policy?
3: Well I think how it is changing American foreign policy, is causing all of us to focus more inward in the immediate term, right? We're worried about our families, we're worried about our safety, we're worried about our communities, we're worried about our economy. And I also, so that first and foremost. Second, I think some good may come of this terrible trial, which is a reminder, that there's a difference between people who know things people who have expertise on a subject and people who just have opinions on a subject right it really matters to have experts in epidemiology and transmissible diseases and basic uh, public health helping all of us navigate these trials and that matters a lot more than people who just have an opinion on the subject, but not the training and the credentialing and the hard work that makes for expertise. And parenthetically, that's a great advertisement for the American Enterprise Institute, because we care a lot about people bringing uh, trained judgment and expertise in, in crucial public policy problems.
1: Corey, one question I do want to ask is, especially in the context of your recent Atlantic piece about the damage that America First has done to our position in the world and to our allies is will this pandemic change our approach to how we treat our allies and even our adversaries?
3: Uh, It doesn't appear to be changing it so far but I do genuinely believe that just as the pandemic is going to serve as a strong reminder of why it matters to have real public health experts and epidemiologists coaching all of us on what the right public policy should be. I also think we are gonna see a renewed appreciation for the kind of cooperation and the kind of international um, institutions and broad-minded American foreign policy that creates the ability to cooperate even in extreme crises like this. Let me just give you an example of our failure. President Trump has been pushing America's allies really hard to pay more for the stationing of American troops in their countries. And right at the time, we are throwing all of the Korean employees off American military bases in Korea as part of this dispute. President Trump wrote a letter to the South Korean president um, asking for help on the pandemic. Don't you think they would be more amenable to sharing what they have in a time of crisis if we weren't being so sharp edged and narrow minded about our own interests?
2: Perhaps, but to push back on that, though, and I'm not saying, I, I don't know if I fully agree with this, but I feel like one could make the argument that this almost vindic this whole crisis, what better could vindicate Trump's idea of America first when we've got, I mean, doesn't this prove that we need our own supply chains, if not in the U.S., at least among close friends? And doesn't this prove, I mean, I think a lot of people now have seen that video of the World Health Organization doctor pretending not to hear their question about Taiwan and The WHO seems to be totally carrying water for China, another UN paid for international organization. I mean, what do you say to people that think this totally proves Trump was what Trump was right about the need for America first nationalist policy?
3: I'd say three things. The first is what internationalism gives us is what us defense experts call strategic depth. It's the ability to defend your interests before they hit your home territory. And if we had a World Health Organization where we hadn't ceded the leadership to China, we would have had a better ability to understand what was happening around the world as before it hit America's shores. The second thing I would say is that more cooperation means you create the basis for sharing information early, right? So uh, that our our colleague Derek Scissors is surely right that the Chinese are lying about their figures. But you know, the Centers for Disease Control uh, used to have an American doctor posted in China training Chinese doctors on how to handle this kind of crisis, and therefore getting information unofficially and being able to be eyes and ears of the American public, even inside the Chinese health system. The Trump administration cut funding for that position two years ago. Third uh, response is that uh, in the Financial Times, the president of Germany and the uh, King of Jordan and several other national leaders had a plea for cooperating in a way that can help us understand the global picture, not just our narrow national pictures, so that we can develop, so our scientists can work together, so we can develop a global picture of what's happening, rush assistance to where it's needed, because if you think that we're gonna solve this in the US and then not have to worry about what's going on in the rest of the world, um, that's a mistaken perception. Uh, because once this moves, you know, think about the difficulty the United States is having managing this pandemic. And we have a well-developed public health system. What happens when it gets to Ethiopia? What happens when it gets to Egypt? Those, we can't um, hermetically seal ourselves off from that, not just because of supply chains, but because of trade. And actually, I want to pile on one more point, because your point about supply chains, I think, is the strongest case Mm -hmm. uh, for President Trump's position. But even there, I think you can argue that um, our problem is too little globalization, not too much. That is, we, are, we have single point failure because we are too reliant on drugs made in China or on silicon chips made in Taiwan. If you had more globalization and you had the possibility of making those kinds of chips in Mexico, don't you wish you had that right now?
0: I do, I do. <laughs> so, okay, on the one hand, there's a call for cooperation and we need to work together all the different countries to solve this. On the other hand, doesn't this also kind of justify a stronger, you know, a more, a less accommodating position toward China, um, given that so much of this people are saying is a function of you know, the CCP and you know, repression in China, lack of transparency, politics overall, all this kind of stuff. Um, so how do you feel we should approach China? Should we have a more confrontational approach or a more accommodative approach? Or should it switch as we kind of transition out into the next phase? Yeah. of
3: so I share the view of folks who argue that we had China's strategy wrong and that we're overdue for a correction. But unlike most of the people who make that argument, I'm glad we had it wrong because we had it wrong for reasons that say terrific things about the optimism and liberality of the American-dominated international order. We genuinely believed that as China grew more prosperous, uh, the, its political system would create more space for representative governance. That clearly hasn't happened. And so it's time to ta- to change our strategy. But one of the reasons that United States is such a force for good in the world is we're the people who believe the Germans and Japanese can be Democrats in 1945. We're the people who believe that the... People of the Balkans can live side by side in peace. We're the people who believe that democracy creates justice and that Iraqis can be good, solid, responsible Republicans. We're the people who believe that immigrants who come to the United States reinforce what's good about this country. And so our values are why we got China wrong. And we, we shouldn't begrudge that. We should celebrate the fact that um, our America's adversaries' mistake historically is that they leave us enough time to figure out we're wrong and adapt. And it looks to me like China has made that mistake as well. Right? Ask yourself why is China activating the antibodies against their continued rise now, when per capita GDP is less than $9,000 in China, right? If they had won the AI race, if they had uh, waited until they built a military that could genuinely win a blue water fight against the American Navy, you know, all of those things would make our situation much more perilous. But in fact, we have time to adjust and take a much more hard-edged approach towards China to try and force them into becoming what we've always thought they should be and what we still think they should be, which is responsible stakeholders of an international order that has benefited them as much as it has benefited anybody else. It's allowed tens of millions of Chinese to pull themselves
1: up out of poverty. Switching so. gears here, you have the entire country's attention fixated on the coronavirus crisis right now, and rightly so. It's, it's consuming our economy, it's consuming people's lives, and it, it deserves that attention. However, is this sort of overwhelming spotlight on the coronavirus crisis in the United States leaving us vulnerable to any international threats right now? Do we have some blind spots that are not getting proper attention despite the looming and unfolding threat of the coronavirus here?
3: Oh, that's such a great question. As our colleague uh, Fred Kagan would point out, wars haven't stopped being fought just because this is happening, right? The despotic government of Bashar al-Assad continues to turn Syria into a graveyard with the assistance of Iran and Russia. You uh, still have the war going on in Yemen and terrorist threats emanating from there. You still have challenges of the spread of Al-Qaeda affiliates around the world. You have North Korea having tested four missiles just in the period where the United States has been predominantly focused on the pandemic. So the world doesn't stop being a dangerous place. You're exactly right. Um, And uh, it's actually one of the reasons not to push the American military into a leading role in substituting or even adding to um, civil governance and, and public health around the country, because they may be called on to protect our country in the traditional ways they protect our country.
2: At the risk of seeming far overly callous here, is it, can't the coronavirus possibly help with this? I mean, a lot, a lot of the conflicts you mentioned in the Middle East, I, I believe, are funded by Iran, and Iran seems to be hit incredibly hard by this virus right now. I mean, I know we don't have a whole lot of accurate information coming out of there, but do you think that this virus could be the thing that finally causes the regime to fall because they just are seem to be mishandling it so tremendously?
3: No, I don't think so, to be honest. Um, I, I wish it were the case that the people of Iran actually had the ability to choose their government and... To throw it out of power when it ceases to represent them. But I don't see any indications that that's the case. Uh, if you look at a sort of 30 year timeline of Iran, uh, or let's take a 40 year timeline, let's take the period from the 1979 revolution that brought them the Mullahs to power. Um, during the Iran Iraq War, 10 years later, um, casualties were, were enormous, and the government formed something called the Kuds Force, which are kind of irregular militia forces that uh, had a higher degree of loyalty to the regime than the Iranian military did. They took the most casualties. They were rewarded with preferential political opportunities, preferential economic opportunities, and one of the um, one of the downsides of widespread sanctions on Iran is that it has allowed the government to continue to preferentially give opportunities to the Quds force, and. It, Skating forward to 2009 after the parliamentary elections or after the elections in which Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was returned to power uh, and there was enormous corruption in the elections, Iranians came out in the streets to protest and they were brutally put down by the security forces. A lot of people tortured in Evian prison. And in the last 18 months, after um, more protests in Iran, you again saw the ruthlessness with which the security forces would turn on the Iraqi population. And what I know about regime change is when it happens, it tends to happen because the leadership loses the support of the security services. So they refuse to fire on protesters. They refuse to commit torture. They they are more sympathetic to their families than to their leadership. I don't see any signs that's happening in Iran. And that would be the leading indicator in my judgment that you were about to see that government fall. Of course, there is one other possibility, which two other possibilities. One, that the geriatric leadership of Iran get swept away as the actuarial tables take their toll um, because the disease is hard, COVID-19 is hardest on the elderly, or you see it carry away the supreme leader and the succession which is poorly defined and put in place already and it's gonna have real challenges of legitimacy that, that that may make it hard. But again, that all depends on the security services being willing to side with the public, and I don't see any signs that's happening.
0: So now, I think either today or last night, the number of American fatalities from COVID surpassed all those from 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. So does this change the way we should look at, I mean, before you know January, nobody was talking about, foreign, nobody in like the foreign policy establishment was saying we need to, come up with a solution to fight pandemics. We need to work together as an international unit to fight pandemics. To say, you know, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, kind of standard foreign policy concerns. Will this have a, a long reaching effect where now, because we see what this has done to the world, I mean, we, we have no idea how much worse it's even gonna get. It's clearly a tragedy. Should this enter kind of the typical foreign policy concerns like proliferation and terrorism?
3: So I think, um It actually has been an area of foreign policy concern for a while. If you look back to uh, President Clinton's 1999 national security strategy, it talks about global warming, it talks about pandemics. um, Where I think the challenge comes is when you move from foreign policy into What does the Defense Department do about this? Mm -hmm. Because the foreign policy piece is foreign assistance, diplomatic cooperation, that kind of stuff. But um, it's not clear, at least to me, that the American military should divert its priorities from Uh, being able to contest Chinese attempts to control the South China Sea, or terrorism, or um, Russian malevolence and gray zone warfare, or uh, the ways we should have intervened to protect the people of Syria. Uh, All of those have direct defense applications. The the global pandemic has less direct defense applications. But I think you're right that we're gonna see a shift of priorities. So just as after September 11th, that crisis, security crisis, cast an enormous long shadow into American thinking. And really, I think you could make the argument that Al-Qaeda achieved their objective of radically changing the course that the United States was on. Um, I I think this pandemic is also going to cast a long shadow and is also going to radically change the course we're on. I mean, I think the shift from foreign and defense policy to why don't we have a stronger public health infrastructure in the United States? and I also think there's going to be greater concern about the people we take for granted who keep our society humming and thriving, right? Garbage collectors, people who stock grocery store shelves, all of us are getting reminders uh, about the importance of things and people we take for granted. So I I think it even since trillions of dollars in deficit spending don't seem to matter even to conservatives right now. Um, I think eventually we are gonna see a lot of pressure on defense spending. And so we in the foreign and defense policy team are starting a big study uh, about budget driven strategies. If you only have a $500 billion a year defense budget, what's the best we can do as a strategy to protect and advance America's interests, and what does the supporting force structure look like for that? Mm-hmm. We're going to look at the 500 billion dollar threshold, 700 billion, and 900 billion, which I and the other folks on the defense side at the House think is actually what it would take to execute our current strategy. So we're underfunding it by about 150 billion dollars a year.
1: Do you anticipate, I know it's hard to look into the crystal ball in terms of what will happen next politically in the United States, but do you anticipate any unifying effects to come out of this pandemic in terms of our foreign policy approach? Obviously, your your sister is close to former First Lady Michelle Obama, and we know you are a contributing rider to the Atlantic. So whether in, in those circles or just from what you're hearing, is there going to, is any unity going to emerge as a result of this great threat we're all facing together? Oh, I sure hope so, because I do
3: think the biggest danger to our country um, is the zero sum divisiveness that our politics have, that have characterized our politics in the last decade or so. It's, you know, Um, As Abraham Lincoln said, uh, if our country is to fail, we ourselves must be the authors of it. And I really, really do hope that we remind each other uh, of the value of every single American and the way that communities pulling together and civil society taking a leading role in helping us all is the finest of American traditions and that's what makes us great and that's what makes us good.
2: Piggybacking off that a little bit. Yeah, I'm also very curious about just the reputational changes that might happen. So on the one hand, we've got the United States and how we handle it, that will affect how the world sees us. You've also got the case where it, in Italy now, I don't know how how rep- representative these Twitter videos are, but you've got Italians taking videos on themselves, burning the EU flag and saying we we're thankful for China, China sending us all these ventilators, all this equipment, they might be defective, we don't know. But I mean, how, like, do you think the EU is going to suffer a lot from this? Do you think that when all this is over, America's standing will be raised in the world? Or do you think China's winning the propaganda victory right now just by sending so much equipment around?
3: I do think China is winning the propaganda victory. And they're doing it by doing what the United States has traditionally done in these circumstances. Right? It's not like the Chinese have found this secret key that none of us knew. They are doing what made American power more palatable to other countries. So they're playing a weak hand really well. Uh, the Russians have sent military forces to Italy to help in the distribution network of equipment right? At a time where the United States is shipping medical gear from our military bases in Italy back home to the United States. So this isn't rocket science. It's just good basic diplomacy. The best book ever written about American foreign policy is a novel from 1958 called The Ugly American. And in it, one of the characters says, to the extent that American policy is humane and decent, it will be successful to the extent that it is grandiose and ideological, it will fail. And, you know, we've known that for a really long time. And right now, we're being grandiose and ideological. We are refusing a G7 uh, common statement because The other six members won't call it the Wuhan virus instead of its medical name, right? That's grandiose and ideological. And the Chinese are focusing on the humane and decent. That's what makes for winning propaganda and also not bad international policy. I will say though that I think this is likely to be transitory for a couple of reasons. First, because um, American foreign policy, you know, the the school of uh, international relations that labels itself realism, right? That thinks that power is the fundamental characteristic and every state behaves the same by maximizing its power. That has never been true of the United States in part because the best indicator of why America, when the United States uses its power is actually sentimentality and values, right? That we care about suffering and therefore we try and do something about it. A lot of times we do stupid um, self-defeating things, but our values are what bring us out into the world. And the other thing that makes me Uh, hopeful that we are eventually going to win the propaganda war, right? So my mom is actually going to want to do helpful stuff, not ideological and grandiose stuff. So that will put pressure on the American government as we get our own pandemic under control to do stuff that's cooperative. The second thing that makes me hopeful is that free societies are notoriously slow to mobilize, right? Right? we have complex agendas, we have diverse interest groups, there's no substitute for winning the public argument um, before that translates into governmental action. So the Chinese and the Russians can do stuff quickly, but they don't have a basis for sustained public support for what they do. And all the political science um, research strongly reinforces that Although free societies are slow to mobilize, they're much more durable on a course of action once they take it. And you already see France and Germany starting to send medical supplies to Italy, right? That all of us are slowly, slowly getting our acts together and starting to do what the the, um, decent and um, effective things are. We're just slow getting there. And if you think we're slow now, ask the British how long it took us to come defend freedom during World War II.
2: I was about to say, you reminded me, I saw, I think Desmond Lockman wrote a piece today in The National Interest where he began it by quoting. He said, there's the famous Churchill quote that says, you can always count on America to do what is right after they have tried every other option. <laughs> but we're finally coming around and doing what's right now.
3: So <laughs> yes it's true and it's not just true of the united states it's true of free societies guys we always want to do as little as possible and that's actually a terrific impulse it's part of the reason that democracies you know if you look at the literature about international conflict democracies fight more wars than autocracies do we just don't fight them with each other Right, And so what the wars that free societies tend to fight tend to be wars about expanding the zone of freedom in the world. Um, They tend not to be wars of conquest. Um, And so again, like we're slow to get mobilized, but we do eventually get it right, because free societies, unlike authoritarian societies, actually have to be accountable for their choices and the public understandably doesn't want to go to war doesn't want to do a lot of things until you see the slow grinding together of gears and us figuring out what needs doing and persuading our friends and neighbors of it
0: well corey with that i think we're just about out of time one one last question for you do you have any coronavirus quarantine recommendations books movies tv shows (laughs) Anything people should be doing. In addition,
1: in addition to The Ugly American, which our entire audience needs to go read today. Go find <laughs> <a book>.
3: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: it. Absolutely.
3: It's a great book. Uh, let's see. I myself am just now reading Hilary Mantle's third novel in her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell, The Mirror and the Light and it's brilliant. (laughs) I am really loving it and I'm super excited that because I'm reviewing it, I've gotten an early read copy of August Cole and Peter Singer's new novel. These are the guys who wrote Ghostly, which Mm -hmm. did more for changing attitudes about a rising China and the need for us to be militarily and politically prepared for it than anything else did. Uh, what else is great to watch? All seven seasons of Justified, which is my favorite contemporary Western. And okay. we should all go back and watch that finest of all possible Westerns, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, all
0: very helpful. I was worried you were going to say Tiger King, and then I was going to, <laughs> <laughs> was going to be concerned. Uh, great. Um,
3: well, that's all. My sister is my... Um, my vector for popular culture Um, and even she is aghast at it (laughs)
0: aren't we all aren't we all (laughs) well corey thank you so much for coming on the show we hope that you you know stay healthy and well and thank you for all your thoughts and insights
3: thank you for having me on banter my friends
0: thank you corey Thank thank you corey all right corey thank you for coming on the show thank you to all of our listeners as always for tuning in We're going to try to be bringing you weekly episodes still. You know, it's a bit tougher now. Things are up in the air. But that being said, AEI is cranking it out. We're happy to be here. And we are desperate to talk to people and have some social interaction. So send us your thoughts at at banter.aei.org. And send us your recommendations for what to do under quarantine. We have a few ourselves. I'll start. I am working through a list of 30 or so classic movies. Movies I've never seen before, some of which I'm humiliated to say that's the case for. And I'm working through the list. And I've watched a couple of movies last week that have been absolutely fantastic. Pan's Labyrinth, for anyone who hasn't seen it on Netflix, 10 out of 10, fantastic movie. Two, he's rolling his eyes on the video camera. He seems not to be much of a fan of it. And second is, I recommend a book. This one is called The Boom by Russell Gold about fracking in the US. Excellent book, very interesting. Good way to entertain yourself. Matt, I think, I just
1: wanted to say that This is the first time in human history that Pan's Labyrinth has been recommended alongside a (laughs) book about fracking. I'm glad you got to witness it. First of all, I think Pan's Labyrinth is a great movie. I'm just surprised you chose to recommend it over One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which you also recently watched for the first time. So a little surprised by that. On my end, all I've got for you all is I think this is a great time to dive into a documentary series. So I've heard terrific things about Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary series. And so I think I'm going to watch that and learn about every aspect of the Vietnam war. It's a long one, but this is the time to do it. So I'll be checking that out and hopefully have some thoughts next time.
2: Funny you mentioned the Vietnam war, because when Corey recommended her book, she said the ugly American, I thought she was going to go with Graham Greene's the quiet American, which is also a great novel on foreign policy about the Vietnam war. So I'd recommend all of Graham Greene's stuff, the quiet American, the power and the glory, Brighton rock, the end of the affair, All those are fantastic novels. The Heart of the Matter, The Ministry of Fear. Check out all of them. I'm still working my way through his stuff, but every novel has been a treat and I recommend all of them to you. Also, the movie I watched last night, Prisoners. If you've seen Sicario, it's a great movie. This is uh, the director's first English language movie, Prisoners, came out before Sicario. Got Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal. Check it out prisoners on hbo go
0: all right well with that we hope that you can entertain yourselves for at least the next week we'll be back then with a so far unknown guest but we promise to bring you another fantastic episode of banter in the meantime we hope everybody stays healthy stay at home we'll be thinking of all you guys and see you next week